Save big money now on new siding from LP Smart Side at Menards. Update and beautify your home with your choice of 13 timeless colors of pre finished engineered siding. It's durable and includes a Sherwin Williams factory finish paint warranty that means no painting for years to come. View our entire selection of siding from LP Smart Side today. And don't forget to check out our flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at strange familiars if you've had an encounter with the paranormal if you've seen something unusual cryptid a ghost a ufo encounter and you want to tell your story you can email us strange familiars podcast at gmail.com before we start the show i wanted to mention that joshua cutchen and i will be at fort fest in linthicum maryland near the bwi airport that's saturday and sunday june 29th and 30th we will both have copies of our books to sign and sell, and we will be giving a joint talk on Sunday, the topic of which will be Weird Bigfoot, Where the Footprints End. If you want more information, if you do a search for Fort Fest, one word, Fort Fest, Maryland, 2019, the Eventbrite page will come up. So we have more rabbit synchronicities to report. We have in our backyard a sort of rabbit burial ground. Because of the number of wild rabbits around here, there are occasional rabbit tragedies. One will get hit by a car or something. And I've taken it upon myself to bury them rather than to let them lie in the road. Our last pet rabbit was named Lilac. And when Lilac died, we also buried her in the rabbit burial ground. And over top her, we placed a large concrete statue of a rabbit. When we found Echo, our new bunny, we found her no more than 20 yards away from that statue and Lilac's grave. Well, today, Allison looked up what kind of bunny Echo was. We knew she was a mini Rex, but there are different varieties. And we were stunned to see the variety of mini Rex that Echo is, is called a broken Lilac. And again, we found her no more than 20 yards away from Lilac's grave. In other rabbit news, Allison walked to the library today and came home and said, I think there's a, another domestic rabbit out there right around the place where we found Echo. So I went out with her and looked under a car and I said, oh, this one? And she said, oh, no, not that one, another one. So there are actually two more domestic rabbits that someone has let loose. I spent my entire evening tonight catching one. I'm completely exhausted, but I did capture one more 
There's at least one more domestic rabbit out there, which we will do our best to capture and keep it safe until we can find a home for it. If anyone local to York County, Pennsylvania or nearby is looking for a pet rabbit, contact us. You can email strangefamiliarspodcast at gmail.com. We are looking to home some more rabbits. So tonight we'll be talking with Johnny Miller. You've already seen his art. He's done a couple of the icons for Strange Familiars recently. And now you get to hear his stories. The first half of the conversation, we talk about art and the occult, music and more. In the second half, we get into some strange sightings Johnny has had. Okay, tonight we're talking with Johnny Miller, who contacted me not about his artwork. And I was familiar with your art. I'd seen it around. I'd seen pieces here and there. I'd run into it different places. uh, Certainly the t-shirt you designed for Cody, Borealis Ironworks. I'd certainly seen that work. And, And some of the stuff you've done other places, including Fiddler's Green magazine, which we both do work for. But I didn't make the connection that this person who contacted me was also the person who had done this artwork until we talked a little bit. And then I was like, Oh, okay. So you didn't even contact me about the artwork. You contacted me with these paranormal experiences. But before we get into those, let's talk artwork. Cause I, I love your art. And uh, like I said, we've kind of orbit the same places here. It seems. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I feel like I'm indebted to, to the work that you do definitely for, you know, it's, it's been a huge influence on, and not only my my artwork, but just the direction that my sort of interests have taken. So I encountered, you know, your music whenever I was in college. And from there, I just, you know, sort of, you know, the whole DIY underground folk sort of punk zine tape culture era. And so, you know, I, I, I ran across a compilation that had one of your tracks on it. And I just, you know, from there, it just took off and I was doing a lot of digging around on the internet and making connections with other other artists that you you know you you'd released albums for on your label you know i noticed that you had done a lot of the, of the artwork for you know all the all the stone breath records and i was just like this is really cool and then a little bit after that about the same time or you know around around about the same time i first encountered austin Osmond spares artwork and um a friend of mine who i i was working with at the park district here in, in the city, I was a gardener. And th- this actually was what I, I wrote about for the Fiddler's Green, the recent issue of that. There were so many interesting people that I ended up working with at this place. And one of them was someone who I went, went, went on to be really close friends with. And he kind of he kind of wanted me to get, he was like, you know, you, you, you don't really, you're not really drawing as much anymore. You know, I know you're an artist and musician. And he really kind of prompted me to like, he was like, you should take a look at some of this stuff. You know, Austin Osmond Spare is a really cool artist that I've known about for a long time, and you should, you should take a look at this guy's stuff. Uh, I think you'd really like it. And so from there, I just went and kind of, like, did some research on the Internet. It was really difficult at that time to find books by him. There had only been a few things. I mean, there you know, there's obviously stuff that was published in the 70s and stuff like that, these reprints, facsimile editions and stuff like that, but those are, those are really hard to come by, too. So I really had to go hunting. And eventually, I picked up something of his at a local kind of metaphysical bookshop here in Chicago where I live. And, um, yeah, just looking at his work, I was just, I was like, this is, this is amazing. I can't, I mean, I can't believe that I had not heard about this guy. I went to art school and there's, you know, his name is, is never mentioned in anything. 
to do with that particular period. I don't, I don't know how, how familiar most you know people that, that might listen to this show are with his work, but he was basically a, I mean, I would, I would kind of call him a, like a proto-surrealist artist. I, I would, would you agree with that kind of statement, I guess? Tim? Yeah, um, he started yeah. off as like an incredible portrait artist. Like his portrait yeah, work, yeah. portrait work is exquisite. I mean, honestly, one of my favorite portrait artists. I think. Period. It's beautiful. His portrait work. Oh, absolutely beautiful. And something happened. Mm-hmm. He shifted, <laughs> and uh, I guess surrealism happened, and and you know Picasso and all that. So this is right at the end of the eighteen hundreds, and art really mm-hmm. changes. Art changes a lot very quickly, and. I think he felt that he didn't want to be stuck in the old school. So, you know, the the old school is, you know, very realistic stuff. And, and of course, you know, I guess it starts with, like, impressionism and, and so forth and things. You know, the camera is the ultimate tool for realism. So, you you know, it's, it's kind of mm-hmm. hard to compete with that. Although I would argue... Exactly, yeah. I would argue Spare's portraits capture way more than a camera ever could. Well, yeah, and that's the whole idea behind those uh, sidereal portraits that he would do as well, where he sort of, you know, he would make these, and this was, you know, this this went on, I mean, kind of later in his life, I think, when he was doing a lot of those, if I can remember, you know, correct, uh, correctly date-wise, but he would do these sort of, they were really realistic portraits, but they were kind of, they were like skewed in a bizarre way. Yeah. Um, and I think his, his intent was that, you know, by painting a person's portrait in this way, you, you got to see a side of them that sort of like this hidden veiled, more occulted side to, to the person. But he, I mean, he did this for um, a lot of sort of like, you know, he would, he would paint just, just normal folk in his area. I mean, he was, he was a um, sort of a cockney, um, you know, kind of like lower class person kind of, kind of living in like on the fringes of poverty in, in his area in London and he would paint people that he just encountered at the local pub and on the street. And, but he, you know, he had this beautiful way of capturing people in, you know, in this, this sort of like, you know, I guess you could just call it surreal way. But then he would also do straight portraiture too, which was, I mean, like you said, I mean, his stuff is just absolutely phenomenal. Um, if you look at what he did though, so my opinion with Spare over the years has changed. And, one of the things I like about your art in looking at it is I don't know if you've put one and two together in such a way or if you got this idea organically without ever like thinking it out in such terms. But if you notice what Spare did, there's nothing in him that's copying other artists. So you can see his artwork change as he realizes art is changing. And it's it's very... It's, it's very organic with him, his artwork, too. You see things start to, you know, suddenly smoke starts to take on a different character, you know, in his ink drawings mm-hmm. and so forth. And uh, eventually, the you know, these these weird creatures start coming out of the smoke, which are, are not realistic at all. They're very strange looking. And I think that's, to me, that's his way of incorporating ideas like cubism and surre- surrealism and so forth, but in his in a very personal way that's very unique to spare. So he can have, like you said, mm-hmm. it'll be a very realistic portrait, and then it just goes off, like, you know, in, in the background or, or, you know, part of the portrait would just go off into this sort of surreal, you know, kind of other style almost. And it's like two styles in opposition sometimes, which may in fact fit into Spare's whole idea of himself being the, you know, the Janus archetype, uh, which he yeah, said exactly. he always felt like he was facing in two directions. 
But in any case, with many people who are influenced by Spare, both magically and artistically, don't ever get is the point of Spare was not to copy Spare. Mm-hmm. The point of Spare was to forge your own way. And it took me a long time to learn that. I spent my 20s doing death posture portraits and things, you know? <laughs> it was, yeah, yeah. yeah. You know, and and it, <laughs> at some point it clicked. At some point it clicked. It was like, oh, no, Spare wouldn't want you to imitate Spare at all. Spare would want you to do your own thing and, you know, take the ideas of Spare, but do your own kind of thing with them. So there's a lot of, I mean, not a lot, but there's a few occult artists out here who I've seen is like, wow, that's, you've, you've really studied Spare and that's where it ended, you know? <laughs> but, uh, I yeah, really like yeah. that, that I mean, you've taken these ideas and you have this sort of uh, folk quality to your illustration that, you know, it's a different aesthetic. It's not, you're not just trying to be, you know, Austin Spare Jr. Yeah, I mean, I actually, you know, I mean, whenever, whenever I first encountered his art, you know, I think a lot of people do this with, uh, with anything that they're influenced by, you know. You know, you're going to try to you're going to try to imitate it. You're going to try to take some of his techniques and, and incorporate them into your own method of working. And, you know, quickly I realized, I was like, this, first of all, I mean, the guy technically is just, I mean, out of this world, um, you know, it's not going to come anywhere near uh, touching him, you know, at least technically like that. But that, and that wasn't really my intent in the first place. I was more interested, you know, as I started to kind of learn more about him, I became more interested in his method of sigil magic and automatic drawing and utilizing, um, you know, trans states and dreams to influence work. And, and, you know, at this point, like, you know, I, I, you know, I had had a brief kind of cursory, I guess, understanding of magic and the occult and witchcraft and, you know, ritual magic, all that stuff. I didn't really know too much about it, but through kind of the tutelage of my friend who introduced me to Spare's artwork, I started to dig more into it. And, you know, it was really because of him that I kind of, you know, my life kind of took the path that it did subsequently. So, you know, Going forward, after discovering Spare, I mean, I really sort of, I really started to take my artwork a lot more seriously after I graduated from school. Um, I think it was like 2006 or 2007. I it kind of dropped making art, and it was really Spare who kind of brought me back to making work again. And my work was totally different um, after encountering him, and I think for the better too. I mean, I, I was really kind of floundering. I didn't really know, you know, I was like, I don't really have none of my ideas are really seem really fresh before I had encountered his work. And, you know, I think he kind of really invigorated that kind of spark of, you know, kind of inner work that I really needed to do to be able to continue to make art that was meaningful. Yeah, I mean, from there it took off and um, I started to do a lot more research uh, on my own and started to kind of practice some of his methods of sigil making and automatic drawing. But again, like you said, I didn't really want to, I didn't really want to mimic what he was doing. So I really, I, I, I kind of, you know, consciously tried to drift away from making art that was like his, at least, you know, at least I think, I think my art is fairly different. I, I took a lot of influence as well from religious art because, I, you know, I grew up in a Catholic household and I was surrounded by, you know, these you know, beautiful icon paintings and stuff going to the mass and that kind of thing also really influenced a lot of my art. And especially with some of the newer work that I'm doing, I feel like I am indebted to that aspect of my life as well, too. Yeah, and I'm still, you know, I still go into a church, and it's like, you know, some of the, some of the most amazing 
art yeah. you could ever encounter is, is is in there, especially when you get over to Europe. I mean, it's just it's unreal. So you cannot underestimate the power of that imagery when you're like what four, five, six, seven years old, and you're just oh, a kid, yeah. and you're not paying attention to mass, but you're looking around at everything there is to look at. In the and the, you know some of these Catholic churches are beautiful. Yeah, and there's just so much to look at, and this imagery just gets locked in. I mean, it's I know it happened to me. It was incredibly influential. You know, it's just it's this really, you know, you got this death imagery and the the Marian imagery and so forth. It's just you know, it's everywhere you look, and it just gets locked in. To me, it did anyway. As a little kid, it just became part of my world, and I would have denied it at the time. You know. Oh yeah, I mean, I went through a you know I went through a long phase where I really was kind of a non believer in anything. I, I don't even know if I necessarily called myself an atheist at that time, but I, you know, I definitely went through a phase where I was like, yeah, this is, I don't want to believe in any of this stuff, and it doesn't mean anything to me, but, you know, as I, as I, you know, started to become more interested, you know, forging my own spiritual path, and really started to read more about comparative religion, and read books by people like Mircea Eliade, and, you know, like, shamanism, and all this stuff, I really started to kind of make these connections, and I was like, you know, actually, this stuff is really important, and I need to really, I really need to take it into account uh, in order to have a, a more wide-ranging um, sort of appreciation for, well, you know, all manner of art, because a lot of art, you know, even even when you look at, you know, modernism and stuff, is, is definitely influenced by, you know, Eastern art, religious art, even when you look at, um some of the uh, found objects and stuff that were being, people were using, and they were kind of like mimicking this sort of, you know, like tribal cultures. And, and so, you know, all of it kind of gets tied in, and, and I became, you know, heavily interested in, in all kinds of religion and religious experience. So I, I'm, I'm actually very indebted to my family for raising me in such a traditional, you know, household in that regard. You know, I definitely have my my disagreement, you know, disagreements with family members about certain aspects of that faith, and I and I don't I wouldn't call myself you know a practicing Catholic, you know, at this stage. But you know, I mean, I'm I'm much more of a uh, nebulous sort of uh, practitioner of you know with just an appreciation of the spiritual um, traditions of of all cultures. So, which might sound kind of flimsy, I think, to some people. Now everybody's kind of like you know you gotta. Well, you gotta, you, you know what I mean? You gotta, you gotta pick one thing and go with it. But I, I just generally do have an interest in a lot of things. And, and you know, while I do, a lot of my work focuses on specifically aspects of uh, what uh, is termed traditional witchcraft. You know, I mean, there's a lot that keeps in from, you know, all manner of non-Christian religion, like you mentioned, folklore, uh, the folk life of people and just uh, traditional costumes and dress and and, and music, all that stuff kind of feeds into my overall sort of aesthetic. So, um, yeah, I think, I think religion's fine and I would not disparage anyone's religion, but a lot of my life has been sort of finding and building my own mythology in a sense. And mm -hmm. that comes from a number of places, including the Catholic church. I mean, uh, if someone, if you need to nail me down and say, what are you? I say Marian animist, which makes people's heads explode because like, wait, wait, <laughs> you know, how do you, how do you uh, marry those two things? It's like, well, it's hard to explain because animism, depending on the way you look at it, can be a very almost universal type thing. You can, you can apply it, you know, to Buddhism, you can apply it to Christianity, you mm -hmm. can apply it to many things depending on, on how you look at it. But the influence of Mary in my life became very important in my thirties. It was like, and I had tried to, you know, kind of almost deny it or, or at least walk away from it. And 
even tried to shift my interest to uh, Mary Magdalene because I got for a while interested in the whole, oh, that whole like bloodline of Christ, Renla Chateau mm-hmm. thing. And of course, Mary Magdalene plays very heavily into that whole story. The Blessed Virgin Mary just kept coming back and coming back and coming back. And at some point it was like, oh, this is going to be part of my life forever. And it's, you know, I, you can no longer deny this. So, uh, yeah. yeah, I think some people just have to, well, my, my best friend put it best. He said, some things hum and some things do not hum. I follow those things which hum. And I got mm. ve- very happy when he said that. I, he said that to his wife when she was like, how can you be this way? You know, because <laughs> uh, he's about the closest person I've ever met to someone who gets my path or or maybe walks a, a very similar, if not the same path. And he said that to her. He, he said, some things hum, some things don't. I follow those things which hum. And I was like, oh, man, thank you so much. Now I finally have something to tell people. Yeah, that's that's fantastic. Uh, you know, and going back to you know creating your own mythology, too, I think that's an important thing. I mean, I actually just read something from Rumi, or it was a quote that he said that was almost exactly that. It was like, it actually was like you must create your own myth or become your own myth or something like that. Um, you know, I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but... And I was like, oh, yeah, that's fantastic. And even like I, we were talking last um, uh, last time we spoke about psychic questing mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of finding your own, you know, your people are on their, each person's on their own trip. You know, everybody, everybody's got their own personal experiences that feed into the person that they're, that they are and that they're becoming and that, you know, is, is constantly unfolding. And I think that that, you know, that's, that's a really good way to look at things. You know, I think that, any form of dogmatism, whether it's it's in witchcraft practice or whether it's in Judeo-Christian framework, is just very uninteresting to me. And uh, I think the people that resonate the most with me that are, that are in those those types of traditions are the ones that are that are the outliers, the ones that are telling you, you know, that you do have to make your own path. I mean, even somebody like who is another big influence on, on me is um, Andrew Chumbly. I, I don't know if you're familiar at all with his work or with what he, you know, he was sort of trying to do with his version of traditional witchcraft. But, you know, I think when he first started off, uh, when you we, look at some of his earlier... Oh, go ahead. I'm trying to... Which... Did he write a book? I'm trying to think. He was a traditional witchcraft practitioner who, kind of in the early 90s, he wrote a lot for Starfire Publishing, which he wrote some articles for them. He okay, was I used to do a, art for them. publication called The Cauldron. Oh, you did? I did art for the Starfire publication itself. When uh, okay, okay, probably seen his work. Yeah, I can. I mean, I can describe it more yeah. fully. So you know, I'm, I'm looking a, at a it now. Understanding. And, mm-hmm. He was one of those people who was like, I think, you know, heavily influenced by somebody like Ostinato and Spare. But when you read, like, you start to look at his work as as it evolves and it becomes its own thing as well. I mean, it starts off, and there are some very obvious kind of thematic elements that you can see coming from Stare, but he, he takes it in a direction that is so uh, amazingly unique. I, I study a lot of his writing, and I, I love his artwork, and it's one of those things that for me is that, you know, there, there's a lifetime of wisdom to be kind of picked apart in his work, and a lot of it is, is very uh, obtuse for even seasoned occultist or magical practitioner. And uh, and that's part of the beauty. It's it's almost like these. It is mystical writing. It is mystical prose and mystical poetry. A lot of the stuff that he that he wrote. His big thing is is that he also stresses this idea of don't read my work and think that you need to follow this to a T. This can be you know your own path. This can be something that you take and make your own. 
I'm just providing, you know, perhaps some ideas that can help to facilitate that opening up of your, of, you know, oneself or help kind of lay the groundwork for creating your own magical universe. So that aspect of of his work was really important to me as well after finding out about Spare. And then from there, you know, things really took off. That's when I really became interested in studying historical witchcraft and folklore from all over the place, specific interest in certain aspects of American, especially American witchcraft lore, and then very much interested in the British Isles and Ireland as far as the traditions of, of witchcraft go there. And so I, I was doing a lot of reading all over the place. When I first, you know, really started to become interested in this, that's all I did. I would just read and read and, then, you know, just become immersed in this world. And I didn't really have as much of an, of an interest in, you know, I, I read Crowley. I, you know, I, I uh, had a kind of, you know, like a limited interest in ceremonial magic and ritual magic. I definitely have an appreciation for that, for the stuff. And I, and I, and I do, you know, look at some of the grimoires and utilize imagery and, and inspire and draw a lot of inspiration from those books. But as far as like, you know, a lot of people are, I mean, that's like when they, when they hear the word occult, their mind immediately travels to Alistair Crowley and, right. And Salima and, you know, well, that stuff is great. And, uh, it's definitely, obviously hugely influential in the 20th century on everything that came after. But I've tried to keep things a little bit more folk magic oriented. It's that's, that's the stuff that, that interests me the more earthy, dirty stuff, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. Crowley, stuff it, that it, Crowley just doesn't hum for me, at least not as it was expressed through Thelma. Mm-hmm. And I think he like, I'll read the book of the law. I'll read his poetry. I think he, I, I actually, you know, people, a lot of people say he was a horrible poet. I actually like Crowley's writing. I like his poetry. Oh, yeah, I do, too. I like the Book of the Law as a written piece of sort of uh, channeled text, you know? But it's just not my religion. And I think Thelma, yeah. to a lot of people, becomes a religion. And it just, I mean, I, to you know, use that same phrase again, it just doesn't hum for me. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, obviously, with, without doubt. I mean, like, Crowley, I mean, I, I think of uh, Book 4 was, I think, the first book of his that I ever, that I that I found. And I was like, wow, this is really interesting. I mean, he's talking about, you know, yoga and breath work and ways to set up a ritual space and, um, you know, the different ritual implements in that book. And that was actually, I was like, oh, this is really, this is actually very helpful. But then, you know, you pick up some of the other stuff and you really have to, uh, it's just, yeah, like you said, it just doesn't, it just doesn't hum for me either. And it just doesn't carry the same sort of power that, you know, that comes through these sort of more, I guess, like visceral or intuitive forms of creating art and creating magic, yeah. um, which is how I've always gone about things. I mean, I, I played music for a long time as well. And, and you know, I always was like, I'm terrible. I'm, an, I'm a terrible musician. But, you know, one of my band members was like, he's like, the thing about you is that you just, you're just intuitive and you can figure things out and you know how to, to make things work in the context of what you're doing. And, and I was like, oh, that's, I've never thought about that before, but I guess maybe that maybe that explains things because I can you know I'm not I'm not technically adept when it comes to making music or like I mean I, I went to school for painting so in that regard I think I've got things down but you know in other ways like I just I just kind of figured things out I have a very like DIY sort of approach to, to making everything that I do and think that whenever I think about you know traditional cunning folk and I think about 
you know, people living in small, tight-knit communities and, and uh, creating elaborate mythology in their own communities and, and folklore. I mean, that's the stuff that really motivates me. I mean, I, much more than some forms of highfalutin you know, ritual magic. It's just not as, it's just not as, uh, it just doesn't do it for me. It's not as dynamic, I feel like. Music is a good parallel for it because, like, for example, I worked for years at a, a local music shop and many people there, not everyone there, but a lot of people there had been there for, you know, since the 70s, if not the 60s. And these mm-hmm. are these are old school bluegrass guys who put, like, everything is based on, like, how good you are. So they were... You know, it was always who was the best, you know, bluegrass banjo player. Who was the best mandolinist? Who was the best clawhammer banjo player? This guy's really good. This guy's, you know, one of the best, one of the best, one of the best. And I knew I was never going to be the best at anything. Like it's just not, the, mm-hmm. you know, I could practice every day of my life, and I'll never be, I'll never be the best. Any, you know, fill in whatever instrument. And one of the teachers there at some point came to me and said, "I don't understand." why you have all these LPs and stuff and mm-hmm. like how, how you have all these opportunities musically you've, you've toured the country you've, you, you know, you've got all these LPs and, and you're always recording and you got this and this and this, and you've had all these opportunities. I don't understand why you get this. It's kind of like very kind of <laughs> like disdainful kind of way. Yeah. And I thought about it for a minute. And at this point, you know, I'm, I'm in my thirties or even my early forties. And, uh, you know, I really just, I'd found myself and I'd found my Mm -hmm. place in the world. And I, at some point I just said, you know, I realized at some point in my life, I was never going to be the best banjoist in the world. I was never going to be the best call hammer banjoist in the world. It's never going to be the best singer was never going to be the best singer banjoist in the world. I was never going to be, but the one thing I could be the best at was me. And that's the, Mm -hmm. that's the only thing. And I guarantee you, no one else, good or bad, it doesn't, you know, whatever you think of it, no one else can make a Stone Breath album. I am the only person mm-hmm. in the world who can make that album. And that's, you know, that's the only answer I can give you. Because, and I think, like, DIY culture did that for me. It gave me the confidence to do that, to have that kind of attitude where I know I'm not the best, but I also know that, A, no one's going to do it for me. It's, no one's going to sit there and write these songs for me. You know, It's down yeah. to me to do it. And B, I have the, enough confidence to get the job done with whatever I'm doing. I'm writing Currently, I'm writing a lot of harp songs. I'm not a great harpist by any means. I'm not probably a bad harpist, but I can get the job done for what I need to do. Mm-hmm. Like you were saying, that sort of folk culture mixed with DIY, mixed with that kind of visceral, like, just jump in and do it. Mm-hmm. And I think that that'll that'll get you places in the world if you just have the confidence to do it. And by place, I don't mean, not like, hey, I'm not famous, I'm not rich, but I'm happy. I'm, yeah. crea- I'm creatively happy. Yes, yes, that's exactly right. I think, you're, I think that is, I mean, that is, that is the crux of what any creative person should be looking to do is to, you know, like, like you said, you don't have to be the best at, at something. I mean, I think about like, you know, somebody like a blind Willie Johnson or something like that. You know, these, these old blues guys are like you're saying like old bluegrass players. I mean, 
they had something that was that was more the, the thing that moves us still to this day about listening to that music is that it it it, it, it has like a, a real soul to it. I mean, like it is rich. It's dynamic. It, it is not like cold, sort of like highly technical, you know, shimmery blues stuff that's coming out nowadays. You know, that's being played by a lot of contemporary people. It's like it wasn't about guitar solos and flashiness. It was about expressing something that was more primal. That was more in some of those guys' cases that it really came from a place of like despair and you know uncertainty. So, and I think that, you know, whenever you, you as a creative person are inspired by that kind of stuff, amazing things can, can happen. And, you know, like you said, it's a, I think, you know, this is another illusion that people kind of have about, you know, magic and, and, and especially within witchcraft practice. Like, they think that you're going to be able to just, you know, all your wildest desires are going to come true. And, like, if, if you just do this, this spell this, this particular way or, you, you know, time things. But it's like, so that has, that plays into it. But people forget that you have to act on things. You have to make it happen for yourself. You can't just sit back and after you do this action, just expect that it's going to take care of itself. You really have to be proactive. You have to take initiative and you have to do it yourself. And that's, I mean, that like coming for me, coming from like a you know background in punk music and that whole kind of, you know, subculture, like that was mind blowing to me whenever I first discovered that you could just, you know, do things on your own. You didn't need to, get approval from anybody else you could you could go to kinkos or wherever and xerox your own zines and you know make prints of your of your work that way and i, I thought i was like this is just like the coolest thing i've ever i've ever seen yeah you know and it, it just revolutionized the way that i thought about a lot of stuff and i mean danny i mean that's still kind of the way that i do things you know how to book flights and hotels all you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive that's why you need viator Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Save big money at Menards. Let the fresh air in and keep the bugs out with replacement screen for your doors and windows from AdForce. It's easy to install, durable against the elements, and comes in a variety of types to suit your needs. Repair your screens today with a roll of replacement screen. On sale through May 5th. And check out more great deals happening now in our weekly flyer on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards. Everything that I've ever achieved creatively is, is because I've, I've gone out on a limb and sort of put myself out there and said, hey, you know, like, I may not be the best you've ever seen, but, you know, I really, I, I have a passion for this, and this comes from a place that is, is deeper than, than even I can understand and I'm putting it out here on page or, you know, on the canvas. And if you like it, I'd, I'd love to work with you. You know, that's kind of how it's always worked for me. You know, like I said, I think I'm indebted in a large way to like seeing the way that you've gone about things in your life, because at the time that I discovered your music and your label, 
I mean, I was like, I was kind of like, I don't know. <laughs> it, was, it was another like crossroads moment where it was like, I don't know what really fires me, uh, you know, musically anymore. It's like I was, I was getting, I felt like a lot of the stuff that, that was uh, around at the time was just stuff that I just wasn't interested in. But whatever I heard, I was like, oh man, you know, he, he's got banjo on this record and he has this sort of, it's got this extremely dark atmosphere. It's like, this is, a, I mean, this is great. Some of my favorite stuff kind of rolled into one thing, you know, I mean, and from there, you know, I became interested in English folk music and like more, you know, American Appalachian music and um, from there, the, the folk culture that kind of came along with it too. So definitely like hugely influential to, you know, encounter your work at the time that I did. So oh, thank you so much. Um, that's, no, that's, yeah, I, I mean, I mean that, that, that makes it all worth it. You know what I mean? Like a few people tell you that and it's like, man, yeah, that's, that's freaking cool. So that's really touching. Honestly, thank you. I should tell you the story about the first track I ever heard by you was on this compilation that one of my friends had gotten from a classmate that they had made. It was like, you know, this was like the, you know, early 2000s or something like that. It was probably early to mid 2000s. And it was all collections of MP3s that this person had found online that were really interesting to her. And so two of your tracks were from, you know, some Stone Breath albums were interspersed with like, you know, it was like bizarre, like, I don't know, like strange field recordings of like a, like a specific Turkish ethnic group. And then there was like some really raw live recording of, of the MC5 that I never heard before. And then there was like a, a Sufi, uh, like this 20 minute long, like Sufi incantation that was amazing. And I was like, it was kind of all these new things that I had not heard before. And then, like I said, in the midst, in the midst of it was like these really dark and sort of like moody atmospheric tracks with banjo and these, these sort of like almost, you know, kind of a, I would say like gothic vocals. And I was like, this is really, really interesting. And I just, I was like, from there it took off. There were so many things on that little compilation that really kind of sent my mind off in different directions, you know? But yeah, it was, it was really cool to encounter it that way too. Cause again, it's this whole idea of DIY. Somebody had made this compilation and made the, the artwork and, and wrote their liner notes and everything. And they distributed it to their friends in their class. And that was how it got out. So you know, it wasn't an officially sanctioned um, compilation or anything, but it was just a, it was a really interesting way to uh, to hear new music. You know, yeah. So yeah. I, I don't I don't feel like I encounter music that way as much anymore either. It's it's I feel like in certain ways it's made it more difficult to discover music with the current way that things are done, where you know you just you just got Spotify or things like that. I, I feel like I, I miss the days where you, you know somebody hands you something and you're like whoa, okay, this is interesting. And then it just leads you down a rabbit hole. You got to go to the record store and, and find it, you know, and then from there, you know, the, the person at the record store tells you something else that kind of sounds like that you should check out. Right, right. It doesn't happen as often anymore, you know? No, so, the closest thing I've found for me to the old, like, independent record store experience now is Bandcamp, where you mm -hmm. know, if I just go through and you'll, you can look by tags or, you know, there are different blogs and stuff that feature stuff just wandering around and seeing you know the the, the different things available there it, that's the only thing that even kind of comes close to that feeling i used to get from going into like a, a really cool independent record store and you're just like wow what's this what's this yeah 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 i mean i still i still frequent a lot of record stores here i used to work at one as well in chicago here and i don't get to them as often as i used to but i mean there's always i was just going there kind of like Okay, there's one thing I want, but I know that I just want to like look around and see what see what there is. And and I still I still buy records, and every once in a while I'll buy a CD or tapes. Even you know, I mean, I'm still 
I'm still very much uh, a materialist when it comes to that stuff. Anyways, <laughs> it's just like, yeah, no, I'm the same you know, way. The I've, physical object is very cool to have. <laughs> I have a wall of CDs that I, you know, I had a when CD players were new. My girlfriend bought me one, and this is when, like, there was not hardly anything was available on CD, and mm-hmm. I, I was, I think, I was 15 or 16 in high school she bought me the CD player. And so I have CDs going back, you know, to when I was 16. Uh, so so mm-hmm. c- CDs were always my preferred format just because, I mean, I like vinyl and everything, but CDs were just a lot mm-hmm. more convenient and, and you didn't need a, a top of the line record player for them to sound good. Yeah. Yeah. And, and you know, I will nod that vinyl sounds great. If you have a great record player, <laughs> if, if you have a cheap yeah, record is, player, true. <laughs> yeah. If you have a cheap record player, don't try to argue with me that vinyl sounds great. Cause it, on a cheap record player, nothing sounds great. But anyway, yeah, uh, no, my daughter, <laughs> you're definitely right about that. <laughs> my daughter's 15 and loves CD CDs are, are her preferred format. So I think the death of the CD, I think CDs will be coming back the way vinyl and then cassettes have and, so CDs will will have their rebirth because she absolutely loves them. She like kind of hates to buy any other format. She likes vinyl as a you know big piece of artwork kind of thing. But as far as uh-huh. as far as listening to music, she she wants CDs. Yeah, I mean even I mean even with uh, the ability to to burn CDs and stuff. I mean it's like that's that's an extension of the whole tape culture going back back in the day and. You know, I mean, I think that there's something because there's still I know that there's there's labels that put out tapes and stuff, but they also, you know, the, those same labels are a lot of times releasing CDRs and stuff as well too. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, there are people that, that press their own records too. You know, I mean, I think of like a band like Wolf Eyes or something where they're, you know, all their early stuff was all lace cut, and you know, I mean, that's pretty impressive to be able to do that. But I don't think a lot of people have <laughs> have the ability to do that. Uh, which would be really cool. <laughs> but, there, there are a couple places um, that, that do lathe cuts. I'm getting ready to do, a, I think, a, a lathe cut 10 inch here coming up. Yeah, and in, in in the next year maybe we'll see. Cool. Well, I'll keep my ears to the ground for that for sure. So yeah, I mean, do you want me to transition here to? Yeah, yeah. So, so uh, talking about the other stuff here. Yeah. So before we get off the artwork, I'll just say, and I'll put this in the show notes. Your website is johnnydeckermiller.com, and again, that'll be in the show mm-hmm. notes for people who want to see it. And you also did the artwork for this episode, so the uh, what I call the cover with the icon or whatever uh, is Johnny's artwork as yep. well. So, so you can see his artwork both of those places. But that's not even why you contacted me. So I thought that was really cool, but I put it together afterwards. I'm like, wait a minute, as you know, we were talking some more, and I was like, oh wait, no, that you know, you have this whole other thing with the artwork. You contacted me about these you know, kind of weird experiences you had when you were younger. And one of them was when you were real young with Black Dogs, which is a huge fascination of mine. So let's, yeah, let's jump into that. Strange Familiars podcast is brought to you by our patrons. Without our patrons, we could not do Strange Familiars We're almost at 100 episodes. We never would have made it that far without our patrons. So thank you, patrons. Thank you for your help. Thank you for your support. If you'd like to help us make Strange Familiars and get extra shows besides, we do at least one full extra show for our patrons every month, please consider becoming a patron at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. There's all different levels of support there. 
If you want things like t-shirts, stickers, pins, copies of my books, and more, you can check that out. It's all at Patreon, patreon.com slash strangefamiliars. If you don't like the idea of a subscription, you can always make a one-time donation via the PayPal Me link that is in the show notes at strangefamiliars.com. Of course, it's free to leave nice five-star reviews wherever you're listening, to like and subscribe wherever you're listening, and to share Strange Familiars on social media. And now we'll get back to more stories with Johnny Miller. Yeah, I mean, I, I really, you know, I've listened to your podcast for a long time, and then I just, like, I was like, I felt compelled. I was like, I just, I have to reach out to Tim and, and, and talk to him about because there are some weird sort of synchronicities or, or coincidences with one of the people who was interviewed in a you know previous episode. And I was like, I just, you know, I'm, I just have to call and, or, I mean, email him and, and let him know what, what, you know, what happened because it's just, it's strange, it's a strange parallel. But yeah, I mean, you know, ever since I was young, I've, I've had strange stuff happen. One of the first things that I remember is basically these strange, uh, yeah, black dog encounters that I would have. To my memory, it seems like it was almost a nightly thing whenever I was a kid growing up in Northwest Indiana, where my mom would, you know, she'd be putting me down to bed and I would, you know, be begging her to, uh, you know, not shut the light off because I could, I could see out in the yard there were these you know, look like a black dog, like large kind of almost German shepherd looking black dog with kind of reddish eyes. And, you know, I don't know if this was just influenced by something that I had seen. I mean, I, I, I think I told you the last time that we talked that like I had seen uh, the Ghostbusters movie and that dog in that movie always freaked me out, the black dog that was in there. But I, I think I'd seen that after. I can't imagine my parents would have let me see that like whenever I was literally probably first grade or something like that um, right. whenever I remember this stuff happening. So I don't, I, mean, I don't know if, which came first, if I saw that and then influenced it or if I, you know, but at, at any rate, this stuff terrified me and I was convinced that I was seeing it and I would look out, you know, the window every night and see these black dogs just sitting in the yard or standing in the yard. They didn't do anything. They never moved. You know, there was no sign of them at any other time other than whenever I was getting ready to go to bed. I had come to find out that there was, some other strange stuff that had hap- that happened in, in this house and in this area where I grew up that's still sort of like <laughs> unveiling itself every time I talk to my dad. He recently, um, I recently went to go visit my parents and I was, you know, because I, I knew I was going to be speaking with you. I was like, let me just see if I can get some more information out of my dad here about this house and like the strange stuff that we sort of encountered there. And, you know, a few years back, he told me that like I was, we were just talking about memories of, of, you know, growing up and he said, yeah, you know, that, that house that we used to live in in Hobart, Indiana, I saw some ghosts in that house. And I was like, what? Like, you never told me this thing. Like it scared, you know, it scared the, the, the life out of me. I mean, I was just like terrified. And apparently he hadn't, you know, he'd woke up in, in early in the morning or late at night, sort of in that groggy kind of feeling that you have when you get up to, to use the bathroom and get a drink of water in the middle of the night. And he walked out into the hallway of this house and there were two uh, girls standing in the hallway. And he said he just bolted back into the bedroom and, you know, was like just petrified and fell asleep and just never really spoke of it again until literally decades later when he told me about it. And he, he had he'd spoken with my mom about it before, but I had never gotten the story. 
so apparently a bunch of other, you know, strange things had happened in this house. I mean, I, I guess what happened, the big thing with, with these, these ghost girls that he saw, there was apparently some kind of fire in the house at a particular point in time, and uh, some, some, some girls were killed. At least that's what my dad was told he, when he talked to either neighbors or somebody else in the, in the community about, you know, what he saw. I went back recently to that area to see what was, because I, I mean, I have almost a, you know, picture perfect memory of, of all the places, even from whenever I was that young, I could, you know, I, I went back to the town and was driving around and I could remember every, every place that, that I'd been to. And I found the spot where the house was and the house is no longer there. It's like totally leveled seemingly for no reason. So it leads me to kind of wonder like what else was really going on in this house? You know, was there, was there more paranormal activity after we moved out or, you know, you know what, what really happened? So that was sort of the earliest experiences I ever had with strangeness, high weirdness. Before um, we move on, let's talk a little bit more about these dogs. About did did you see them for you know months, years? About how long did you see these things for? Well, I mean, we only lived in that house for. Uh, we think we moved. I think we lived in there for only about. A, it was like my parents' first real home. So we we only lived in there for a year or two, and then we moved to another house in that area. So it wasn't for very long. That's that's the only place that I remember seeing seeing them. I never really re- remember having any any memories of it after that. To me, they 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 look like black, sort of like German shepherds. They had the pointed the pointed ears. The eyes were like a glowing kind of red color, sort of like um, like just when you, when you when you hear like you know you think of like a the, the folkloric kind of black dog, you know English folklore. You know, this is only something that I've learned about, you know, in the last few years where I've really kind of connected the dots and like, is this, is this connected? Is this, is this something that, that is related to this phenomenon or is this purely something that was fed by, you know, something that I'd seen when I was a kid or, you know, it's hard to tell at this point in the, in the future, like what really was happening. But yeah, yeah, that, that was, I mean, I just have this vivid memory of these, you know, these large German shepherd looking black dogs with red eyes just out there. And do they seem, yeah, once we moved out of their house, never, do they seem, never saw them again. Do they seem like normal dog sized or were they extra large? Or? They, it was hard to tell being in, you know, in the upper room on the second floor, but they seemed like, to me, they seemed like they were like normal size. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, German shepherds are already fairly large dogs, but they seemed like, you know, on par with that, that, that size of a dog. And they never, I don't remember them moving or doing anything. It was just like, I just looked out the window and would see them out there. And it was just like these stationary image images in my mind that I can remember pretty vividly now, but Do you remember about, um, how, about how many, would, I mean, multiples would come, right? I feel like it was usually like one or two, mm-hmm. um, that I would see. I don't remember there ever being more than that. You know, sometimes it would be, it seemed there would, there would be just a single one and other times there would be, there would be two. There was no real rhyme or reason as to why they would be by themselves or not. But I, you know, I, I, talked to my mom recently about this too and asked her and she's like, Oh yeah, I remember you being really freaked out about that. <laughs> you know, so but she had no answer either. She's like, I don't remember anything that happened back then. Like you're talk to your dad. And I was like, How can you not remember this stuff? <laughs> she's like, I don't know. I just you know So, so I've got a book she never had anything strange happen to her so like that. So Yeah, yeah. I've got a book on the you know, black dog phenomenon as expressed in the UK. I'm working on some stuff on black dogs in the US. Mm-hmm. And 
I just put a post up in on Facebook in the in the Strange Familiars group where I was talking about I said please you know black dogs are acceptable paranormal currency on either side of the Atlantic they happen in both places they're not limited to England however the expression changes a little bit over here not always but often they seem to be something that accompanies other phenomena mm-hmm. where often in England you you know you have your black shuck and that that is the phenomenon you know that's it that's mm-hmm. that's uh, maybe some weird lights associated with that or something. But black dogs are like weird lights here a lot of times. They'll, they'll accompany other phenomena. They'll accompany cryptid sightings. They'll accompany ghost sightings. They'll accompany flannel man sightings. Not always, mm-hmm. but enough where I've started to note it. So it's interesting that, you know, in later years, your father admits to seeing ghosts in the house. To me, it's like, oh, okay. So they it's accompanying that phenomenon too. Or maybe the ghosts are coming the dogs, depending on how you want to look at it. Were they supposed to, like, presage somebody's death, too, or something? I, I feel like I remember reading that. That kind of goes hand-in-hand hand with the black dogs, too. Like, you would, you might see one, and then, you know, the next day you find out that, you know, a relative is, is, is dying or has, has died. Yeah, um, yeah, and, and that occurs. Yeah. That, I mean, that's, a, a you know, heavier in in the U.K., I believe, that that part of the tradition, but it came here too. I mean, you'll find that in blue songs and stuff and, and, mm-hmm. and folklore. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, did your father describe those ghosts? No, I mean, he's, he just said that they just were like, he couldn't really tell their age, maybe like five, six year old girls. They weren't dressed in like what you'd imagine, you know, like a lot, a lot of people when they encounter something like this, it's like they're dressed in sort of, you know, older clothes. It's, he, he said it seemed like they were in just like normal, like a normal nightgown, you know, like just like a, like a, mm-hmm. like a white nightgown. He's like, you know, it's, it's been a long time. I just, you know, I don't really remember the specifics. I just remember being like, absolutely. I mean, my dad is always kind of, he like doesn't like horror movies. He's always like, how do you watch that stuff? And, and I think this really affected him early on because he just, he doesn't want to, he doesn't really like to talk about ghosts and you know i mean it's just like one of those things where if it even comes up he just kind of doesn't really say anything which is why i thought it was strange that he even told me this in the first place because he'd never mentioned it before at all and you know my mom was like yeah he told he he told me about it at the time but that was pretty much it i don't you know i think he, he asked a few people around the neighborhood or something like that about you know if there was anything strange about the house but but he said that that didn't really influence their decision to move which we moved you know like i said like a year or so after that happened so i don't know it didn't didn't bother him that much i guess i mean he never saw anything again in that house and i never encountered anything other than just these you know these black dogs and i remember getting electrocuted at that house um and i just remember just there was just a weird feeling in the house i just i mean i always just remember it it was a very strange place Hmm. so I, i and i try to look into the you know to the historical record to see you know city records to see like if there's any note of why this house might have been torn down but i I couldn't find anything based on you know what the presumed address would have been my parents didn't remember the address but last week i drove past it just to see like what was there and i I, you know i was like oh my gosh this is it was like everything kind of came back just seeing that where where that plot of land was positioned and, and you know in relation to every place else that I, re- I remembered from the time. But that was strange. I mean, my dad, you know, he told me he had uh, another sighting later in life, too, which this is something that I, you know, I didn't realize that he had, he had actually seen this. I always thought it was like my uncle that had encountered this thing. But when I, again, when I was talking to my dad last week, when I was visiting, 
he was like, oh, no, no, I saw this. And I, so I can tell you about that, too. This, yeah. You might find this interesting as well, too. Sure, yeah. My dad was always a, a really a big hunter and outdoorsman. So he and his brother would often get permission from farmers around the area or, like, in other areas closer to where my grandparents lived in South Bend, Indiana. And they would ask farmers for permission to hunt on their land. So they would usually set up their tree stands kind of like on the, the edge of the, of the forest, kind of like where the soybean fields or corn fields would be. And then they would go out hunting in the, usually in the autumn. So he says that he, like at one point, whenever he was hunting, he saw a woman in white walking through a field, like maybe 20 or 30 yards out into the cornfield or soybean field, whatever kind of, you know, crop was growing, he could see it through the, through the tree line out in the field. And he just, he just like watched, you know, watched her kind of appear from nowhere and then walk across the field and then just kind of, you know, disappear. And again, this is something he never, he'd never talked to me about. My cousins had said something about their dad, you know, my dad, my dad's uh, brother seeing this phenomenon happen. And, you know, I always thought that that was, that was his story. But my dad was like, no, that was, I, that, I saw that. That was that was something that I saw. I mean, we were out hunting together. He was in a different spot, but my dad was the one who had seen it. Wow. And again, I'm like, why have you never told me this? Stuff? <laughs> you know, the kind of thing that I'm interested in. Why, why, why am I like just hearing this now? You know, and he's like, I don't know. You know, and it's one of those things where it's like, did I really see it, or you know, was it, you know, was it just really early in the morning? And you know, because he said it was right, basically at dawn when it happened, like basically right as the sun was really starting to come up over the horizon is whenever he saw this woman. Wow. So, and apparently that area where he was hunting at, I, I looked into a little bit of the, the folklore of, of this particular place. And there's a road there that's supposed to have, you know, a bunch of strange phenomenon. And there was mention of a, a woman in white or like, like a prom, you know, whatever that, whatever that um, urban legend is with the prom mm-hmm. uh, queen who is on the side of the road or whatever. It's a similar sort of, you know, folklore in that, in that area. So I don't know if he, because he said that she was wearing a white, uh, white dress, you know, that was kind of flowing. And as she walked slowly across the field, it was kind of flowing behind her. So I don't know if this is a, related to that or, but he, you know, he wasn't aware that anything bizarre occurred in that area at least to my knowledge he never mentioned anything and he you know when i asked him about it he didn't seem to know anything about the the you know urban legends of that particular area either so right who knows but i thought that was very interesting yeah yeah that is very interesting that's that's another one i track black dogs women in white i am definitely interested in those sightings so i was just gonna say i mean i this, this is all stuff that i you know like in my life i would have loved to have seen something like this, at least I think that I would have, but you know, like it, it happened to be my dad who is pretty reserved when it comes to talking about these kind of things. So, well, you know, I definitely trust his accounts, but it's, it's just strange that he happened to see it. And I, and I never did. When I was talking to my dad about this, he, I, I said, have you tell, you told me this stuff. Is there anything else that you, that you've noticed in our family that is strange or that you, that you think that I would, that I would find interesting. You know that I like this stuff. And he's like, well, yeah, I mean, I don't know, you know, your grandma used to be able to predict when somebody in the family was going to die. And she was very accurate. And I was like, what? (laughs) I did not know anything about this. And he's like, yeah, I don't know if she'll talk to you about it now, but, you know, you should ask her sometime. So I'm definitely planning next time I see her to ask her about that. But that was about all the detail I could get from him about that particular familial uh, 
legacy, mm-hmm. <laughs> I guess. But I, uh, yeah, I'd never heard anything like that at all from anybody in my family. You know, I mean, it could be now that, you know, I'm older and, you know, I'm starting to finally get to the point where, you know, my aunts and uncles and, and everybody are starting to kind of just open up more about things that have happened in the family or, or, or whatever it is. But yeah, a lot of the stuff I just wasn't aware of. So I'm glad to be finding out about it now, though. Yeah, absolutely. The weird light story you have, you were uh, college age at that time? I was just about ready to start college. I think I was either a was moving from being a junior to a senior in high school. So again, this was like early 2000s, late 90s, early 2000s, I guess. So I graduated in 2001. So it would have been a year before that. So 2000. And uh, yeah, so this definitely the most like harrowing thing I think I've ever experienced. And like I mentioned to you last time, I think it's only recently that I've started to kind of see it in, in a different way than what I what I had originally kind of thought that it was. So there's a place on I-65 south of Crown Point, Indiana, where I grew up after we moved from the previous town of Hobart, Indiana. You know, most of my life was, was growing up in this town. And when we were in high school, a lot of my friends and I were really into horror movies. And, you know, we would talk about ghosts and all kinds of, you know, kind of metaphysical things that we just would speculate on. And at some point, somebody had told us, I don't even know how we originally heard about this, but somebody was like, oh, have you heard of this place? It's called Moody's Road or Moody Road. And we're like, no, no, tell us more about it. So eventually we, we get, get the information that this is, you know, and this, this sounds like now hearing it now and thinking about it, it sounds exactly like, again, like these urban legends that every town seems to have where, you know, you go to this secluded road you flash your lights and, you know, a strange thing happens. Either an apparition will appear or there'll be orbs or whatever it is. But this particular one, there were supposed to be strange lights that would appear at the end of this at this really rural road. So we made plans to go out to the place. It was like late autumn or maybe early winter. It was very cold, I remember. And it was probably like one or two in the morning when we went out initially to this location. And it was about 45 minutes south of where we were we were all based out of in Crown Point. And this place is completely, I mean, it is, I mean, Crown Point was really rural at the time. Now Crown Point is very built up and there's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of shops and things around there and, and, and industry. But at the time it was already very rural, but going 60, you know, going down I-65 south there and getting deeper into the, you know, to some of the other areas, towns down there, but there was, there was nothing down there. It was just all, all farmland. So we get out to the spot. I honestly, I mean, we, we used it, you know, good old paper map, like a, you know, that was, that was how we found the location. We just basically looked up the name of the road in the town that, that, that it's supposed to be at. And we, we located where it was and we just drove to where, where, where it was supposed to be at. I don't honestly know how we found it because it was so dark and we were just, we had no idea where we were going, but eventually we made our way to the spot. And we uh, pull up to the to the end of the road, and it's about I would say maybe a mile from one end of the road to the other. The backstory of this place is that I mean, well, one of the stories is it, people people thought that the mob would come and dump bodies in this area because it was pretty close to Chicago. Well, that was one of the versions of the story. There was another version where there was a a man whose daughter was kidnapped. 
so he went out looking for her at night with a uh, with a lantern, and he comes to find her severed head sitting on a tree stump next to this large oak tree or something like that, and then he's eventually killed by whoever had killed her. That's another version of the of the of the reason that this place is supposed to have paranormal activity happening. So you know, there's there's no record of any of this stuff. I don't know where it came from. It's just another version of like an urban legend, I guess. So you're supposed to pull up to the road and then you're supposed to flash your lights, the normal kind of thing that you hear about, about these kinds of things. So we get out, we flash the lights, the car is parked and we get out and we're kind of like walking around and walking down the road a little bit. And all of a sudden at the end of the road, we do see a light up here and it's a little small, you know, little speck of light in the distance. And there are other little pieces of light that are shooting off in either direction from it parallel to it. And we're kind of like, Oh, okay, that's interesting. I don't know what that is. And so the thing with the, with the lore is that it's actually the light is supposed to come down the road and, and chase you down the road. So it doesn't look like it's moving to us. So we start to kind of walk towards it a little bit and it's myself. And then there are at, at this time, I believe there were two, two more people with me. I can't remember if it was two or three. So we're, we're all walking down the street and kind of joking around and having a laugh about it. And it starts to look like the thing, the light is actually closer this time when we look up at it and we're kind of watching it. We're kind of watching it. It's very hard to tell, you know, it's almost like an optical illusion. Is it actually moving or not? I can't tell if it's getting bigger. I can't tell if it's coming towards us. Eventually we realize that it actually is moving towards us and it kind of goes down this dip in the road and disappears and pops back up over the top of the, of the, of the hill um, and starts getting, you know, coming closer and closer to us. And so everybody starts to get a little bit freaked out and we're like, what's going on here? And eventually, I mean, the thing is like, looks like it's coming right towards us. So we, we kind of bolt back to the car and we get in and we're, everybody's freaking out and they're, they're like hitting my back and like, go, 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 you know? And because it's middle of winter, like it's like a horror movie. I mean, like the tires of my car were spinning out. I couldn't go anywhere. And I think it was because I was on black ice. I was parked on black ice. So it was just the tires were spinning and they're like, go, go, go. It was a very intense moment. Eventually, you know, the traction catches and, and we take off and fly back, um, you know, to our town and we're talking about it the whole way and we're really freaked out and we're like, well, we're definitely going to go back there, you know, at some point. So that was the first time that we encountered this and we made plans to go back, you know, a couple of weeks later and this time we go back and it's different people this time. So, and we kind of retrace our steps. We go, we go back about the same time of night, one or two o'clock in the morning. And we park uh, at the end of the road and nothing's really happening this time. And so we get out of the car and, and my, my one friend is kind of, kind of being a little bit of a jerk and he's like, you know, screaming stuff out and, you know, kind of making fun of the whole situation. And, you know, we're kind of like, all right, man, like, let's, let's just relax here. And, um, let's just take a walk down to the end of the road. So we walk all the way down to the end of the road and there's, there's nothing down there. There's no, you know, we were trying to figure out, well, what, you know, what we saw last time, what, what could it have been? I read somewhere online recently that like this had been debunked or something. It was like, a, you know, it was like some lights from the highway that were like miles and miles and miles away. And I was like, I don't, I don't know. I don't know if this, if that's what it was or not, because the, the highway is so far away. I can't imagine that you're going to be you're going to be seeing any sort of reflection this far down from from where the highway is. So we walk back towards the car, 
And as we're walking back, we notice the light appears again, and it does the same thing where there's kind of a light, you know, the beam, the, you know, individual light shooting off of the side of the main light or orb or whatever you, you want to call it. And it starts to kind of approach us closer this time. And it, it does kind of the same thing as, 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 the, as the time before. And it's getting closer and closer and goes down over the, down into the dip and comes up over the top of the hill again. And so everybody's getting very nervous and um, we're like, well, no, let's just wait it out. Let's wait it out and see what happens. Let's like, let it get closer and, and we can really see. And at this point, we're really charged up and we're like, Oh man, it's really, it is getting close and the light's getting bigger. It's getting bigger. And so we, we can't wait anymore because it's like really coming fast towards us and we are all terrified. So we get into the car, we take off. And as we're driving away from the area, I, we, we all look back and, and the light is like right where the car was parked. But at this point it had, it had like grown substantially. And there's like a huge, it looks like, it looked like a huge bonfire, like a, you know, just, just blazing right where the car was parked. And I'm looking back, I'm looking back as we're driving away and it becomes sort of like this, almost like a pillar of fire right where we were parked. And then the next time that I look back, everybody's screaming in the car and we're all freaking out. Everybody's seeing the same thing. Eventually it just looks like a huge, it looks like the, it looks like, you know, the sun had risen. It was so bright behind the car. I mean, it was like a blaze in the middle of the sky and of this kind of like white hot, orangey yellow flame kind of nebulous indistinct shape of flame you know that was just sitting in the sky at this point it was just huge like just hovering above right where we were and everybody was just completely beside themselves and we eventually you know we we drove off and we nobody had any recollection of getting back to the house we were just all so, so in shock and I think that we didn't really even, we didn't even really talk about it much after the fact. I mean, there was basically just no, no real discussion of it other than just sort of like, do you, do we really see that? And everybody seemed to kind of concur that yes, we, we all did see that happen. You know, time went on and some of the friends that were there with us at the time, I don't really see anymore. And so I would love to get in contact with some people and, and figure out what the hell we actually witnessed because recently I kind of, had a sneaking suspicion. I was like, is this some sort of like a UFO encounter or something? I, I, I was listening to an interview with uh, Travis Walton who wrote the, um, there, there was a book that was that movie Fire, in, Fire the in the Sky was based on. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, and I listened to something that, you know, a, an interview with him and I was like this, I mean, his story sounds very similar, at least with the, the object that he saw in the sky sound very, very similar to what we had seen. I mean, nothing else beyond just, the object hovering there happened. I mean, it didn't shoot any sort of light out towards us or anything like that, but it definitely grew in size and it just kind of rose up into the sky. It was just like, I mean, an amazingly bright ball of light in the sky or like a, just a shimmering, almost like a, like a, like a sun just hovering in the sky that, you know, I mean, to this day, I still don't, I don't know what happened and many years have gone by. So it's, it's hard to really speculate with any degree of certainty what exactly it was, but I mean, I just kind of, after hearing that last, that interview, I was like, you know, this, this might be something that other people might have, might be able to weigh in on. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. And that's again, the it's, story. That's it's that. another one of those, you know, areas where people say, oh, it's been debunked. It's been debunked. Mm -hmm. And, you know, maybe the first time you went, maybe that was some kind of headlight or something. Maybe, you know I mean? I wasn't there. I'm just mm -hmm. saying like, maybe from your, from the way you described yeah. it. 
Uh, I don't think so, but let's let's give that the benefit of the doubt. But the, whatever you're describing with that second visit, that's not headlights, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, just I mean, and when you when you hear other people's uh, when 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 you hear other people talk about orbs and stuff, I mean, a lot of times they're kind of floating freely in the air. Mm-hmm. But a lot of times you do hear that where the where there'll be like a central, you know, orb or beam of light and or you know, ball of light, and then there'll be other miniature. Uh, pieces of light that'll kind of fly off the side of it, and this this is exactly what what I what we encountered both of those times, and then the, and then it moved straight up the road both times towards us towards where the car was, and I don't know if there was some sort of you know if if the lights of the car had something to do with kind of initiating some sort of you know some sort of activity or if it was just just always happened to kind of be there or or what really was going on, but yeah, I mean it, it was it was almost like at least the the beginnings of of how it how it works uh, both times were very similar so mm-hmm. but i mean anybody that i ever talked to about the road after that or you know nobody really stuck around to see what happened whenever the whenever they did see the lights that they supposedly said that they saw so i don't really have any other accounts of other people experiencing a similar phenomenon so it's very difficult to like I said, say with any degree of certainty what exactly we saw. But I mean, I just remember this immense white hot light behind the car that was just, I mean, huge, like just took up the whole sky. So, I mean, who knows, who knows what it was. It was absolutely terrifying. Before it kind of blazed into the sort of pillar of flame, as you described it, was there any color to Mm -hmm. it either time? Yeah, it was sort of like that, um, you know, when you look at like like the light of a candle where it's sort of like a yellowish white, light orange kind of color mm-hmm. um the, the orb itself when it moved you know towards us was just just sort of a whitish kind of color and then whenever it kind of grew into the bonfire kind of color it was like it looked like actual flame like it was like almost like a almost like a funeral pyre it was like and then it just kind of grew up into this pillar and then it just kind of it, you know expanded up into the sky it went from varying kind of degrees of kind of like that white hot flame um that sort of, you know, that sort of color with some light orange in it as well to kind of around the edge. Yeah, I just remember being extremely bright, you know, almost to the point where it was like, you know, people in the, the people in the back of the car were just like kind of shielding their eyes and screaming, you know, it was like everybody was affected by it, you know. So, yeah, I'd really like to at some point, you know, talk to some of these people again and see what, if they have any recollection of it or remember it or if they want to talk about it because I'd really like to get their opinion on it. Yeah, um, and I have a, a question about, well, I guess I, this would be as good a time as any to ask it. Do you know if any of those people went into the arts or any other kind of creative pursuits? No, yeah, unfortunately, most of the people that I that were with me, one of them is, it was kind of an art, art person, I guess. <laughs> he, he he would write like, you know, little short stories and stuff, kind of like uh, sci-fi stories and stuff, but he never really went on to do anything with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, one of the other guys kind of, he's, you know, he still lives in the town, I believe. And then one of the other guys who's my closer friend at the time. He He's kind of in the financial sector. Like he does, like, I think he's like a financial analyst. So yeah, totally not inclined towards, you know, Mm-hmm. this kind of thing and you know the the guy who went into the uh finance like he was, was in like just an avowed atheist after everything happened i feel like before that he was actually very 
strongly followed his Catholic faith and then he kind of like fell out with it. It was like a, I mean, we would get into to fights and stuff about, you know, he was very sure about things, you know, after this um, encounter, like when we were, when we went on to, to go to college and stuff like that, he would, you know, he just kind of didn't believe in any of the stuff. So I don't know if it, if that was, you know, an impetus for him to kind of have, uh, you know, some sort of revelation in his own life, but I'd be interested to know what he thinks now, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. And then the, the follow-up to that was how long after this did you sort of start getting into the occult and so forth? I'd always been interested in art and music and things like that, but it wasn't until I started working for the city that I became really kind of got introduced to Spare and, and um, you know, the Golden Dawn and and that kind of stuff. And Kenneth Grant, too, was another big one that my, my friend had turned me on to. So I started reading a lot of that stuff, what I could find. A lot of it was extremely difficult to find. Even at the library, there was, you know, they would have some of these books, but they would be in the special collections or you couldn't, you couldn't check them out because they're afraid they're going to get stolen. So it was like, wow, this is a what mysterious world. This is, you know, I mean, this is, this is some serious, this is some really arcane knowledge here. You can't even get it at the library. You know? <laughs> so I was, I was fascinated immediately. I was like, okay, this is now, this is really interesting. And about the same time that I became interested in, in, in the occult and, and magic was, about the same time that I actually got more interested in playing music too. And so I formed a band with some friends and, you know, my, my friend, the same friend that turned me on to Austin Spare and, and magic, uh, he was really like, you know, you should, you should just explore, you know, you like, you play guitar, you should explore music as well too. And he like kind of pushed me to kind of like just pursue those aspects of my life. So I'm sort of indebted to him. He's sort of like an early magical teacher in that regard. He was, he was a, he's a really amazing artist as well too. He's a collage artist. And uh, he was in a band, a pretty pretty big Chicago punk band back in the 80s. He had a lot of, uh, you know, wisdom to offer in that regard, too, whenever I was starting in music and, so, and, and art as well, too. So it opened up a whole world. But that wasn't until, you know, I mean, really, you, you know, years after I had graduated from high school and then, you know, after I, after I graduated college as well, so probably... 2005, 2006 is when I really started to become interested in it, maybe a little bit earlier than that, but, and then just went off from there. So, yeah, it's interesting though. There's several people who have UFO encounters and I'm not saying it was a UFO, you know, we don't know what Mm -hmm. it was, but, but uh, it's been noted that they'll tend to get into, you know, spiritual stuff, especially sort of these more, you know, fringe or whatever you like to call them kind of spiritual pursuits. Mm -hmm. And they tend to gravitate towards the arts. You know, that said, a lot of people who start out as artists also have these experiences. So Mm -hmm. it could be, you know, chicken and egg kind of scenario there. Yeah, I mean, I've definitely noticed that as well. And, you know, my own life talking with other people who've had encounters and stuff with this. I mean, they're they're usually people who are a lot more open and, you know, open to the possibilities. So, yeah, I definitely would agree with that. Yeah. Did you ever go back to that road? No, and I and I thought about going back there whenever I went to visit my hometown last weekend too, just to see kind of how things were. My parents moved away from Crown Point as well after I graduated high school. They they relocated to closer to my where my grandparents are near South Bend, Indiana, and so I don't usually get back to that area of Northwest Indiana very often. So I was like, you know, I'll take a little detour um, after coming back from the visit and and just check it out. And I was like, ah, I should just go down a little bit further south, but I feel like it just wouldn't have the same, you know, I also had like, I had my kids with me too. So I was like, I'm not going to take, I'm not going to take them all the way on this little 
this little jaunt. But someday I would like to go back there at night and see what's going on. I probably wouldn't wouldn't do it alone. Though mm-hmm. to be honest, I I mean you know it's one of those things where I think when it, when I actually got there, I would it would come back a lot stronger. I feel like so yeah, I definitely have somebody with me. But I did take a little bit of a, a detour whenever um, I went to go check out my old hometown to a place that I was never able, we were never able to find whenever I was living there. It's called Gypsy's. It, it goes by the nickname Gypsy Graveyard or Gypsy Cemetery. And there's a whole bunch of interesting folklore that goes along with that place too. Um, but we'd always tried to find it whenever we were in high school. We never, we never could because, you know, again, this was way before Google Maps or any, anything like that, GPS. So it was just one of those places that was just kind of just, you know, lived in our imaginations. But I, I finally, I actually found where, where it's located and I went there and had a little bit of a look around. And it was a pretty, it was, it was pretty amazing spot just on its own. Very small graveyard in the middle of really much, pretty much in the middle of nowhere in the woods. And although it is off of a, a fairly well-trafficked main street, but it's, 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 again, it's pretty rural. And so that was that was kind of cool to check off the list because I always wanted to find that place as well too. And again, I'd like to go again. Probably if I ever do a trip back down to the to Moody Road, I probably will try to stop at the uh, Gypsy Graveyard as well and uh, at night to see if there's anything happening there because there's there's some really interesting stories about that place too. But it might be a lot to go into. <laughs> <laughs> Johnny, thanks so much for your stories. Before we finish up, what are you working on art wise? Anything you can talk about? Oh yeah, I get, so I got a lot of stuff. I um, some of it I can't talk about, but others I I can. So yeah, the Fiddler's Green is the most recent thing that uh, has come out where I have a, a written article in there as well as some artwork. I've done some art and writing for uh, Weird Journal, W Y R D, through Three Hands Press, and currently working on a few illustrations for an upcoming issue of that, and. A really big project with Three Hands Press too, to, uh, but that's something that's, you know, more on that later, I guess. And then I have recently completed some artwork for Nigel Pennick, a book that he has coming out called The Eldritch World, and he's a uh, folklorist pagan from England. So I'm excited to contribute some artwork to the cover of that of that book, which awesome. should be coming out pretty soon here. And then. Um, Another written articles too through Three Hands Press. It's going to come out in the next couple months, I'd imagine too. So, but you can find all that information on my website or through. I do a lot of posting on Instagram too. I'm one of those people. But um, honestly, that's how I've gotten connected with a lot of folks like you and some other artists and publishers and stuff is through communication um, that way. So, I can't just, you know throw too much shade on it. <laughs> What's your Instagram um, handle? just my full name. It's just Johnny Decker Miller. And then okay. the, my website's the same, johnnydeckermiller.com. So you can find me there. All right. And again, we'll put all that in the show notes so people can find you. Awesome. Well, it was fantastic to talk to you, Tim, again. And yeah, hopefully we can keep in communication. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for sharing your stories. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening, everybody. Episode 100, if all goes well, should drop next week for everybody. And thank you all for listening and supporting Strange Familiars. Thank you for helping us grow the podcast. It's pretty amazing. I can't believe we're at 100 episodes. So keep listening, and we'll see you next week. 
Strange Familiars is a production of Dark Holler Arts. Music, books, art, podcasts, and more. DarkHollerArts.com Intro and background music is by Stonebreath. Go to stonebreath.bandcamp.com for more. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash strangefamiliars. You can join the Strange Familiars gathering group there as well. You can also find us on Instagram, at strangefamiliars. Right.
You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.